Good morning. Thank you, guys. If you got a Bible, go with me to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1, chapter 1, uh, all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 2. So that's, that's going to be our section today. We're going to focus in particular on uh, chapter 1, verse 8, through chapter 2, verse 2. So that will be kind of the, the thrust of where we're looking today. It's good to see you all. Um, in 1656, John Owen, one of our uh, Puritan forerunners, brothers, wrote a book, it's a pretty famous one, called On Mortification of Sin, just out of curiosity. Has anybody picked that one up or heard of it? Okay, yeah, a handful. Yeah, absolutely. It's an older work. It's a little hard to read, but it's probably the seminal work on what it means to put sin to death. That's what mortification means, to, to kill our sin, to be fighting against it. And in that book, he said, I wrote it because I felt that my people, he's a pastor, he said, I felt my people were too at home in the world, and he was concerned that they were dealing with their sin in, in different ways, in ways that caused three things in particular, he said at the outset of this book, in ways that caused either superstition, sort of this idea that if I, you know, if I don't step on the crack, if I don't do this thing, as long as I avoid this thing, then you know, everything's gonna be okay. It was more of a luck, kind of superstitious thing than it was to really getting to the root of what sin is and why we have to fight against it. He said he wanted to write the book because of uh, his people dealing with sin in a way that caused self-righteousness. So this sort of like, yeah, I'm making progress and it's in my own strength and therefore it only reinforces this sense of how good I am, not a sense of how good God is, which is essentially what self-righteousness is. And then lastly, and this, this is the one I want you to really, really hear, that they were dealing with their sin in a way that caused what he called anxiety of conscience, anxiety of conscience. And what he meant by that was that they didn't receive the true comfort of knowing the grace and the mercy of God in response to their sin, that they were left in this place of a lack of confidence that they truly were forgiven, that they truly were connected to God, they truly knew God. All right, so this shirt is the camera operator's like least favorite shirt because it's super busy, but I wore it for a reason. This is an object lesson, okay? We're talking about putting sin to death. We're gonna talk about fighting sin, right? And when I say that, you might think that's a heavy subject and there's some weightiness to it. But every time you think that, I want you to look at my shirt and remember, but there's joy to be found in putting my sin to death. The reason that John Owen wrote that book was because he wanted his people to be filled with the joy of being free from the power of sin. He wasn't writing because he's going, God is a rule follower, God, and you better get right or he's mad at you. He was saying there is such joy to be found in walking in righteousness. I want you to have it. And I'll just say the same thing to you, my people, that John Owen said to his. I want you to be free from the anxiety of conscience that sin binds you up in. And I want you to walk in righteousness. So if at any point today I kind of lose you, just go back to the shirt, okay? And just think we're moving towards joy. We're moving towards joy in putting our sin to death. But make no mistake about it, we are here today to talk about fighting against sin. Fight your sin. Everybody say, fight your sin. That's what we've come together to talk about today. And John is gonna give us some great weapons for that fight. And I want you to know that you have everything that you need. In God and in his word, you have everything you need to fight your sin well, to fight that fight well. You are not left without what you need. And that's what we're gonna hear today as we look at John. Now remember that we said that the overarching purpose of this whole letter that John is writing is that there are these opponents who are saying these things that are leading his people whom he loves astray. They're, 
they're concerned, they lack confidence that they actually are connected to God in Jesus, that they have a true and sincere faith. And John is saying, I want to give you that confidence. And if you remember last week, we did this overview, and we said there were three things that he wanted to offer them. He wanted to remind them that if you believe the truth about Jesus, your confidence will grow, that you are connected to God. If you do what is right, learn to do what is right, walk in righteousness, then you will in fact have confidence that you are connected to God. And then he said, if you love the brothers and the sisters, if you love one another well, you will grow in confidence. So as we look at the text today, he's gonna start with that middle one, that learning to do what is right so that we would grow in confidence. And part of learning to do what is right is learning to kill our sin, putting it to death. It's what theologians call vivification, that's a really hard word to say, vivification and mortification. Vivification is learning what's good, is loving what's good, sorry. Learning to love what is good and grow in doing it. And that's what he's gonna talk about next week, okay? In the verses that follow these. But in order to grow towards love of righteousness, what do we have to grow away from? Sin and a lack of righteousness. So he says you have to both hate and kill your sin and love and grow in righteousness. It's two sides of the same coin, do you see that? And so today, we're going to grow in confidence that we know God in Christ, if indeed you do, by learning to mortify our sin, by learning to put our sin to death, by learning to kill sin. And, and John is no fool. He deals with the reality, you'll see it right here in the text, that we are gonna live forever in this tension, that we will never be fully free from sin, there will be sin in us, we will commit sins until the day we die or Jesus returns. That's a reality but he also wants us to know there is victory to be had over sin. We are not a victim to our sin, okay? We are not condemned to keep repeating the same sin over and over. There is sanctification to be had, growth against sin, putting things away that, used to, that we used to struggle with, and now we don't. That is a reality. That can happen. There is growth to be had, and we will live in the tension of both those realities that we will not be fully sanctified, fully free from sin until the day Christ makes us complete and we join him, but also that we are able to walk in victory. And a Christian is, we've said, I think we said it last week, right, is both a realist, but also is not a, like that defeatist that thinks that I'm constantly beaten. Fair enough, yes? All right, so let's look at this text together. And uh, actually, before we do, let me, one more thing. Uh, when Owen was writing, John Owen was writing, he based all of his work out of uh, Romans chapter eight, verse 13. Puritans are <laughs> renowned for being able to take one verse and just make a meal of it, okay? Uh, and so he based everything out of Romans eight thirteen, which says this, is for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, what I want you to notice there, and what's gonna be really running throughout everything we talk about today, is that key phrase, if by the spirit you put to death. In other words, what he's saying, what John Owen's big argument was, was all the religious exercises, coming to church and listening to sermons and having that daily devotional time with the Lord and the scriptures and prayer and fasting and all these others, living in community, these are all rich and good disciplines, but those things done in the flesh and in the power of your own strength do not accomplish putting sin to death. But those same things embodied and, and uh, filled with the power of the Spirit indeed are useful. But without the Spirit, there is no putting sin to death. 
it is a work of the Spirit. It requires, so he says, it is, number one, the duty of every Christian to be killing their sin so that it does not kill them. Be killing sin or it will be killing you, he's famous for saying. So it is our duty, but that duty can only be accomplished in the power of the Spirit, not our own strength. And we'll see how John sort of helps us understand that and walk in that. So this is a deep work of the Spirit that he works in and through us. All right, now I'll give you an outline, then we'll read it. So in the first four verses of our text, what John is essentially gonna do is he's gonna say, hey, these opponents are leading you astray. What I'm gonna tell you is that I'm an eyewitness to everything Jesus said and everything that he did. You should listen to me. That's essentially what he's gonna say in the first four verses. I'm the trustworthy witness, listen to me. And then in verses five, and through five six, and seven, he's gonna say, now here's what, here's what you need to hear that God is light, not darkness. Now, throughout scripture, light and darkness can be metaphors for a variety of things. It can be a metaphor for being confused and lost, darkness or light, like knowing where you're going, seeing the path in front of you. It can be a metaphor uh, that is used for um, a variety of things, but the biggest, like you know, truth versus falsehood, but more often than not, light and darkness is used for good and evil. That which is light is what is morally good and morally right. That which is darkness is morally wicked and morally evil. And that's how John uses it here in verse five. He says, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. He is moral perfection and beauty. There's there's no falsehood in him, nothing impure, nothing unright. And he says, as a result then, those who know him, who are connected to him, who are in relationship with him, are going to be like him. They're going to grow in righteousness. They're gonna grow in holiness. And then he goes on in verse eight through verse two of chapter two to say, so here's what you're going to need. You're gonna need to kill your sin. And here's the tools to do it. Does that make sense? God is holy, therefore those who know him are holy. Here's the tools you need to be killing your sin. And that's why we're gonna focus on verses eight through two. But let's read it together. Starting in verse one, John writes, to these churches, and he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that is Jesus. He is the word of life, God's very message of what it means to be alive and how to be alive. The life was made manifest, became visible, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now here come those tools. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, do you see the affection of that term? That's not a, he's not putting them down, saying, oh, you're like little kids. He's 
calling them with affection, his kids. He's like, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. And if you are one who underlines your Bible, just put like 16 underlines under that. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's how big his blood is. Able to cover the sin of anyone who will come by faith. Sufficient for all who will come. How good is our Lord. So now let's look at that together. We said our big idea today is that we are going to fight our sin and learn to fight our sin. So let's look at the weapons that he gives us in this text. Now, he in earnest starts in verse eight to really start to go, here's how you're gonna put sin to death. Here's how you're gonna fight against it. But he sneaks some stuff in in verse three and four, all right, that I want you to see almost before he really gets to the subject because in five, he's gonna talk about the holiness of God. But the first weapon, the first tool that he's gonna put in our tool belt is one that really lines up with that Romans 8, verse 13, about putting sin to death in the power of the Spirit. And it's this. It's our relationship with God the Father and God the Son. Our relationship with God the Father and God the Son. In other words, he's gonna say the same thing Paul says. The only way to really put sin to death is through the power of God moving through you. So the first tool, the first gift, the first thing you've been given that you need to know if you're gonna fight your sin is that you have a friendship, a fellowship, a partnership with the Father and with the Son. See, he doesn't want to start us out on that legalistic foot of like, here's all the stuff you need to be doing. He wants to start you out and go go back to that relationship again. It's in the sweetness of that fellowship that you will find sin horrible and find him beautiful. Your heart will be drawn. Your heart has to replace the thing it loves in sin with the better thing that is found in God. The root of all our sin is that we think it gives us something that we don't get from God. We are functionally looking to whatever it is to give us something that we don't believe we are getting or can get from God. And he's saying, go back to him and you will see that that is false. And you will have your tastes changed. That's what he's offering. Now listen, look at verse three. Let me show it to you in the text here. Because he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And in a moment, I wanna do a little uh, side. There is this evangelistic impulse that that should just go nuts in us. It should rise up as we know God because there's this desire to see others know him. So I wanna talk about that in a minute. But look where he goes then. We have... We want you to have fellowship with us. And then what does he say next? And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the first weapon he's given them before he really even gets to it is to say, the whole reason that we told you the gospel is we wanted you to be connected to us and we're connected to the Father and we wanted you to be connected to him because it glorifies him and it's joy for you. We wanted this for you. So, When we think about that, now here's what I wanna do each time as we look at these tools, I wanna show you how they kill sin. So how does friendship with God kill sin? This term, fellowship, in the text is the term koinonia, and it is notoriously kind of a broad term. Often it will mean, uh, it can mean 
like shared mission. It's not just like we're buddies. It's like we share a mission. We're on the same, we're going after the same thing, right? So partnership together in some work. But at its root, its most overarching meaning is the deep bond that exists between two people who are deeply bonded to God through Christ. That we are this, we experience this deep interconnectedness with one another because of our connection to God. That's a, the true root of what koinonia or fellowship is here. So you can kind of bring together the words friendship, fellowship, partnership, kind of mash them all together and you'll get a sense of what he means when he says we want you in fellowship with us and in fellowship, our fellowship with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. But think with me for a second now. How does that help fight sin? How does it help kill sin? Well, a couple of things are kind of readily apparent, I think. Number one is because when he says we have fellowship with you, he's saying we're never without him. We're never apart from him. We always have him there with us in the fight. So Psalm 46.1 says that God is an ever-present help in trouble. Are we familiar with this? Psalm 46.1, he's an ever-present help in trouble. Now we might read past that and go, that's kind of a nice idea. He's everywhere present because he's God. And No, no, do you get what he's saying? Very specifically, he's going, when temptation comes to you, you are never alone in fighting that temptation. He's right there. You can draw on him and look to him. And in fact, the first thing you need to learn to do is when temptation comes towards sin, you need to look to him. You need to know that he's right there with you. Now, there's a further thing that he does that 1 Corinthians 10 tells us about, right? But I was pondering this. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and Matthew 6, two key texts. Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. What did he tell us? He said, all right, not only am I always there, I'm teaching you how to pray. I want to teach you how to pray. I'm going to tell you to pray. What? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So he's saying, come to me. Turn to me and say, when temptation comes, show me the way out. Lead me away from this. Teach me how to run from this. It has some kind of hold on me. I need your strength right now. And then what does Paul write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13? He says, not only is God always present with you, like Psalm 46 says, not only did Jesus say, pray this way to me, he says, when you come to him, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but in the temptation, he will always provide a way of escape. In other words, this is what God has really pressed on my heart this week in my own personal fight against sin. See, the Lord was convicting me this week of my impatience, in particular my impatience with my kids and how that's a reflection of my lack of trust in him to do a work in them that he wants to do and how it's me trying to rush timelines and being self-centered and wanting things to be my way at my time. Let's go. And the Lord said, that's sin. It's evil. And I'm looking for something from that, an order to my life and a, and a control in my life in a way that I'm not looking to him to provide. But do you know what he said to me this week? He said, Trent, whenever you are tempted to be impatient with your kids and with others around you, there, there's always a way of escape from that temptation. Every time I feel, if I will look to him, there's a way to not give in to that temptation to be impatient 
There is a way of escape for me in that moment. If you battle lust, there's a way of escape for you in that temptation. As you battle pride and its manifestation in relationships, there's a way of escape. There is no temptation that he does not provide a way of escape from. He's always there. He's an ever-present help. You have fellowship with the Father and the Son because of the finished work of Jesus, which means that in your fight against sin, he is always there, always providing a way out, always providing a way of escape. And does that help us fight our sin to know that? Turn to him. Let it be your first instinct when temptation comes to turn and go, Father, show me the way of escape. He will show it to you. You will never be without it. He's promised, he said it here. If we believe his word, then he will do it. The second thing about friendship that kills sin is not just that he uh, provides a way of escape, but we have a partnership with him in his work that keeps our hearts occupied. So when we have that fellowship, we have partnership in his work. And there's, there's just something about joining God in his work that helps us love it more than sin. So it's what we talked about last week. We talked about serve, serve, like get busy serving, right? Because that's part of what helps us put our sin to death. Now, let me, let me do my, I wanna just do a quick aside because I think it's here in the text and it is really important and I think it's important for our body. Um, you can think about whether you agree with me about this. Part of, part of my role as your pastor is to try to assess, like, Lord, where do we need to grow? In order to be the church that pleases you and accomplishes the work you want us to do, in the world, which is all that matters. You know that, right? All that matters is that we're the church he wants us to be. Not like any other church. Thank God for our brother and sister churches, but we don't need to be them. We need to be the church he invites us to be. And my sense is that one of the things we are probably pretty weak in is evangelism, is sharing our faith. I, I don't see a lot of conversion happening among us. I, I don't hear story often about us boldly sharing our faith or even about having plans in ways that we are doing, going to do that. And I don't know if that's because we feel a little cowed by the world. I don't know if it's because we don't feel equipped. But my sense is it's something we need to grow in. And so as I think about that, I want us to recognize and I want to highlight for you something that's here. What John is saying is that there's this evangelistic instinct that comes with knowing Jesus. Did you see what he said? Like, because we knew Jesus and we have fellowship with him, we also wanted to have fellowship with who? With you. Like, we wanted you to know the sweetness of salvation. There's just something in, there's just something in the saving work of Christ that fills you with the desire for other people to know it. So my question to you would be, I mean, so one, number one, we make space for that, right? So we, Renee mentioned Alpha on Thursday, there might be someone, you need to invite someone to Alpha this week. But let me say that if, if you have a relationship with someone and they're not, you know, that's not, they're not ready for that invitation yet. You know, it's, it's probably not time for that just yet. My question is, what's your plan? Who are you talking to about Jesus? I mean, God has sent you into your neighborhood. It's not an accident. We know that, Right? Whatever neighbor, wherever you live, it's not an accident. You didn't just buy that condo or rent that apartment or buy that house because it was the best deal. You bought it because God sent you there to be light and to share his love. And so my question is, do you have a plan? Do you have a plan for doing that? You need a plan. 
You need space created in your schedule, and if your schedule's too full, stop doing other things. You might need to stop some travel sports because it's more important that people know Jesus than that your kid has one more repetition of whatever that sport is. You might need to lessen some of your extracurricular activities. You might need to figure out how to reconfigure your work schedule. But you need a plan for your neighborhood because you have been sent there and you have a responsibility to do with that sending what God has invited you to do. And can I just tell you, whatever your spiritual gifts are, there's a way in which he intends to use them to reach lost people, to build up the body and to reach people who don't know Jesus. Don't say, well, my gifts are these and those aren't really evangelistic. That's not true. Those gifts build up the body and they are used to bring people into the kingdom of God. And don't say I'm an introvert so I can't get to know my neighbors. That's false, that's a lie. It's not, evangelism is not just for extroverts. There's an evangelistic impulse that rises within us because the son of God who was sent into the world to redeem, to seek and save the lost is in us. It is his mission, his heartbeat, his desire and he lives in you. And if he lives in you, then that evangelistic impulse is there. Don't tamp it down. So I encourage you, what's your plan? How are you gonna invite people into your home? Are you gonna take walks and pray over your neighborhood? Are you gonna have kids run through the neighborhood all the time? What are you going to do? There's so many things you could do. Dream, big dreams for your neighborhood. Okay. That's kind, of, that's kind of the over here thing. All right, let me come back to fighting our sin, okay? But by the way, as we fight our sin, that evangelistic instinct grows and we become more effective at it. So let's go back to our tools, our weapons that God gives us. The second one, and this is the doozy, okay, is confession, all right, is confession. You might need to look at the shirt a lot on this one, okay? All right, so as we think about confession, how does it help us kill or fight sin? But let's, let's find it in the text first because there's really kind of two parts here to that. And here's what we find. Verse eight, look with me. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here's what he's saying. The first sort of confession that we make is that we agree with God that we in fact do sin. So that was something his opponents were saying. We're, we're without sin. We've achieved some kind of righteousness. But it's deeply important that we be people who acknowledge the truth and agree with God in a way of confession, kind of between me and the Lord to say, yeah, I do sin. Now, my guess is if you've been in church for kind of any amount of time, that's probably not something you disagree with. You're probably, yeah, I recognize that I sin, but I just, can I ask, functionally, do you act like that's true? Or every time someone, like maybe a spouse, says to you that was wrong, you're very slow to see what you did wrong very slow to admit that you were at fault. That's functionally the same thing as saying, I don't have, I don't sin. If we find ourselves constantly kind of defending ourselves against what we did and not being willing to acknowledge it for what it is, which is sin. And by the way, that's very childish behavior because if you've raised kids, how often is the response to your correction to respond with, I didn't do that. Or here's all the reasons why it's not wrong that I did that. If you find yourself responding that way, I mean, I just wanna lovingly say to you, that's not maturity. We've gotta grow up. 
We've got to grow up out of that. Being quick to acknowledge and own our sin is essentially what verse eight is talking about. But here's the interesting thing. What did he say in verse eight? If we say we have no sin, he doesn't say first that we're liars. What does he say? We deceive ourselves. That there's a self-deception that is happening in not owning the sin, which is why what is happening in verse six is happening. Because in verse six, he says, if you walk in darkness, in other words, if you sin, right, you don't have fellowship with the Father. So he's saying, my opponents are both riddled with sin and doing all these things they shouldn't be doing, and yet at the same time believe they don't sin. That's a pretty rough space to be in. To say, I don't sin, I don't have sin, but be filled with it and be committing it all over the place. And what he's essentially acknowledging is, here's the way this works. If you deny that the thing that you've done that is sin is sin, you do that long enough and you'll become convinced that you're actually right, that it's not sinful. And then your categories get all confused because what happens is things that are actually sin, you start calling righteousness. You start calling them fine. Which at a cultural level, we're there. Let us not go there at an individual level. That's what happens. You deceive yourself and then all of a sudden you don't recognize things as sin that are sin. So now the second part of confession comes, and here's what I'll tell you. There are a lot of places in the Old Testament where confession is talked about, in particular in the Psalms, right? And whoever's writing, the psalmist, often David, is confessing sin. And it, it seems to be a very private, you know, kind of me and the Lord sort of thing. So that is very much part of confession. Going to the Lord, Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. Like, you know, you know all my iniquity. That's, that's a real thing. And I think that's kind of what verse eight is getting at, saying to God, I agree with you that I do sin. I agree with you that that was sin. But verse nine, in the New Testament, there are really only four places that talk about confession in a really direct kind of way. You'd think it would be more, don't you? But there's only four. And all four of them, if we include this one, and I think we should, are public confession. They are not private confession. They are confession to other believers that I have sinned. They're owning it in the company of faith. And I think this one is included in that public confession because I think verse eight is the private part and verse nine is the public part. And this is what he says. I don't mean publicly get up on the stage, okay? I mean public in the sense of a good friend, a couple good friends, and I'm gonna, I need to acknowledge my sin to you, right? And so he says this, verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So that weapon he's giving us of confession is confession to one another. So let's talk about how that kills sin and then I, I wanna take a minute to talk about how you receive confession because that's really important too. How do you receive confession within the body? So the first thing I want you to see, confession kills sin because it does not let your sin stay hidden, which is so simple but so important. What does John chapter three says? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men hated the light because they love the darkness and they love the darkness because their works are evil. In other words, what he says is in your flesh, there's going to be this instinct that says, do not confess your sin. Keep it in the darkness. Let it stay hidden. You need to expect that fight, yes? Your flesh, when you are convicted of sin and you know I need to confess this either to the person I, I sinned against I need to confess it to a dear brother or a dear sister and just say, I'm struggling with this, help me. 
This is sin, and I, I need to own it. When you bring that forward, everything in your flesh is going to resist that. It wants to stay in the dark where it can grow. And so you have to fight in the power of the Spirit because it's gonna say no, 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 and you're gonna say yes, yes, yes. Come out of that darkness. That's what confession is. I bring it out of the darkness and into the light where it cannot breathe, where it will die because the light of Jesus gives no oxygen to our sin, but the darkness gives it oxygen upon oxygen. So it doesn't let it stay hidden. It also reorients me towards the good. As we said, what happens, the more we walk in sin, the more we treasure it and we love it. And when I bring confession of my sin, what happens is I'm aligning myself with what God said is true. I'm owning that this is in fact wicked. And I'm reorienting my connection of love towards it, towards love for the things that God says are right and good. Confession is part of doing that, speaking that out to the brothers and sisters. And the last thing, I, well, I guess the last two, is that it humbles us because, look, part of the reason we don't wanna confess is because we feel like it makes us look bad, right? Yes. Yeah, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to admit that we have failed, that we have done this thing that we shouldn't have done. I know that. It feels awful. But there is freedom and only in it only in that is there freedom to be found. And so what confession does is it's literally like saying this. In my own strength, I went that way. I failed. And in that humility, there is power to fight against sin because arrogance breeds more sin. Independence breeds more sin, but complete dependence upon the Father and his son gives you power. Humility, humility, humility. The lowering of yourself that confession requires equips you with power to put sin to death because what you're saying is, I need you, God. I can't do it myself. Help me to put sin to death in the power of the spirit. I am weak, but you are strong. And that's where the fight is won, is in that humility. Do you see that? The last thing, and this is, now this goes to receiving confession well, is what confession should do is it should make us more courageous because it's received well. When our confession is met by a dear brother or sister who loves us and receives us with love and doesn't cast us out and say, oh, now that I know that about you, I am not gonna be your friend. When they receive us and say, I'm not going anywhere, I love you, and we're gonna fight this together, when that happens, it fills you with courage and hope. And because the, the thing you were afraid of was that everyone's gonna go, whoa, I'm not staying connected to that guy. And when that doesn't happen, you're filled with courage to keep walking in that righteousness. Because right now, I know some of you are thinking about a thing right now, it's just hidden, it's hidden, it's hidden, and you are afraid. And I understand that. But until we are a church where confession happens in our life groups, like we admit it together and love each other in it. Now let me make two comments about it. Until we're that, we can't be the church that God wants us to be. We just can't be. 
And so those kinds of depth of relationship exist. Now, be aware of something. When someone brings confession to you, there is going to be an instinct of self-righteousness in you that is going to say, wow, I'm better than that person. You'll find it in yourself. And you have to put that to death so that your response is to open your arms and say, brother or sister, I love you and I'm with you. You know the response that should happen in me when my brother confesses to me a place where he has failed, where he has walked in the flesh or given into temptation. The response that should happen in me is, I've done way worse. But for the grace of God, there go I. Brother, I get it. I understand that. Now let's walk forward in righteousness together. I'm here. Now let me say something to that. I'm talking about confession that is sincere, all right? One of the realities that I've seen just over my years of ministry, and neither one of the, you can begin either one of these places and still get where God wants you to go, okay? But I have found again and again that when we get found out in our sin versus when we confess our sin, right? So the person who gets caught is usually takes a lot longer if they ever go at all into righteousness. Usually the person who's caught in sin will often be much harder to convince to move towards righteousness, but the person who confesses sin is much more ready to walk forward in righteousness. And I do need to say that being loved does not preclude discipline from people in authority over you. The person who's truly bringing confession welcomes authority over them and restriction, where restriction is needed and boundaries and discipline, they welcome it because that person is saying, I know that I felt, I know that I've sinned, I'm trusting you to help me move forward. So if there are restrictions or boundaries that need to be placed upon me, I welcome those. That's the mark of true confession, or at least one of the marks of true confession. So when we talk about receiving confession, well, please don't hear that that means that everybody just goes, yes, awesome, And there's nothing that needs to be done to be kind of help you move forward in righteousness. The heart that truly brings confession, look, is is one that receives restriction for a time if needed, right? Put it this way. If my kids come to me and they confess they've sinned in some way by um, disrespecting their mother with their words at a time that she didn't hear, and then, and I say to them, man, that was probably scary to bring that to me. Thank you for being honest and truthful about that. I love that. Let's deal with that together. And then as part of the way that we deal about that, we say, we're gonna go to mama. We're gonna talk to her. We're gonna confess that to her. And we're gonna be, we're gonna ask God to give us sorrow over that sin. And then one of the things that we wanna do to keep growing in righteousness and to put that sin to death is I'm gonna ask you to write 50 things that we're gonna give to mom in a, in a card that says 50 things that we see about her that are God honoring as a way of helping move away from that sin and into righteousness. And if my kid's response is, I'm not doing that. That's dumb. What do I understand about the condition of their heart? Right? They don't, if they're resisting that instruction and authority, tells me there's something not quite where it needs to be. And so we have a different place to begin, to begin from. Excuse me. All right, so now let's look at the next tool that we're given, and that next tool is forgiveness. Forgiveness. So look at verse nine then. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So confession is followed by the assurance that God forgives us. And forgiveness is that God is withholding the punishment that we deserve for our sins because he has placed it on Christ for us, which is the same thing he's gonna reiterate in verse two when he says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. What he's saying is the punishment for your sin was poured out on Christ, my wrath towards sin on him, so that it did not need to be poured out upon you. So there's two key words that help us understand what the forgiveness of God is and how it kills sin, and it's that he is faithful and that he is just. He is faithful and he is just. So friends, when John writes he is faithful to forgive us of our sins, what he's saying is you can count on him to do it whenever you come to him and bring your sin to him. He can no more fail to forgive your sins than he can stop being him very, his very self. And God does not change. There's no shifting shadow in him. He is determined to offer forgiveness through his son And so all who come through his son, he is faithful to forgive, and he does not change that. That's remarkable, isn't it? But then the next thing he says is, and he is just, and this is hugely important, because the question that everybody in their day would have asked is very different than the question we ask in our day. You see, in their day, the question would have been, how can a good God forgive guilty people? How is that possible? How is he good If he forgives all these people who have committed these massive atrocities and these injustices, they lived in a world of massive bloodshed, right? All kinds of difficulties. And he says, how can a good God forgive that? And his answer is he is just because he has punished sin by punishing his own son. So he has not relinquished his justice in any way. So there's no way in which his justice will ever require him to place that punishment on you. You are forgiven and is a just forgiveness because the penalty has been paid. Now, we ask the opposite question in our day and age, which is how can a God be good and still punish sinners? But that takes a pretty comfortable kind of existence to ask that kind of a question. That's kind of a suburban kind of existence, many people have said, where there's been very little injustice experienced, very little pain experienced very little attack experience because when you live in a world where that sort of thing happens, your question gets reversed. And it's, if God is good, then he's going to punish that kind of wickedness. But we ask the opposite. And John gives us a little bit of a correction here to that kind of thinking. He says, God is just to bring forgiveness. He hasn't relinquished that. So let's understand then how forgiveness kills sin. And I think it's probably different than what your instinct tells you. So when we think about the fact that he's forgiven me and I think about how to use that to kill my sin, I'm probably prone to first think about gratitude, which is to say, I remember that he died for me, that he gave his son for me, right? And as a result, I'm filled with gratitude. I'm filled with the sense of thank you, God. And that makes me wanna put my sin to death. Now, listen, gratitude is important and it is really good, but it's actually not the sword that puts our sin to death because gratitude is wonderful, but it's backward looking. And faith is forward-looking. So here's how forgiveness kills our sin. What forgiveness does is it doesn't just make us grateful for the cross. It makes us confident that God will continue to apply the work of that cross every day of my life going forward. That all of his promises are answered yes in Christ Jesus because of the cross. That there will never be a day where his mercies are not made new for me. That my future inheritance is assured by the cross. That my future resurrection is assured by the cross. And it's forgiveness 
pointing me towards faith, filling me with faith towards all those future realities that actually help me put my sin to death. Forgiveness breeds faith, and faith kills sin. Does that make sense? So gratitude, yes, good, amen to that, but more importantly, I think, faith that forgiveness produces. The last thing, the last tool we see here, and then we're gonna come to the communion table, is that we have an advocate, and I'm gonna say the advocate. So the word here in verse one, let's look at it, it says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's just the most blunt way he can put the whole purpose of what he's saying. But if anyone does sin, and we've already seen that we do, so he could say here, but when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This term advocate is the same term that gets used in other places in the scripture. It's the word paraclete. It's used of the Holy Spirit, so there's an interesting merging of the work of the Spirit and the Son here in this term advocate. And he's saying that, like he says in Revelation chapter 12, he says the evil one, the devil, is always accusing the brothers and sisters before the throne of God. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I trust that it's true. Uh, However that looks, the devil is at work doing that. But what then Romans 8 says to us is that those accusations fall on deaf ears and do not land, bring condemnation to us because the advocate, Jesus, is standing or sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us in such a way that every accusation against us falls on deaf ears. He dismisses each one. They are gone. They do not find purchase or root because of how good his work is. That's what John is saying when he says, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now let me make sure I explain something. This is a little bit um, challenging. If I had time, I would take you to Hebrews 9 and really spend a lot of time there where Hebrews is, the author of Hebrews is saying like Jesus Christ died once for all He went into the presence of God and executed the sacrificial work that was required in the holy of places and all the earthly, you know, temple and all that. It's just kind of a, it's an allusion to that. It's it's showing that, right? And in that text, one of the things that we see is something that's, I think, really helpful to us. Because when we get this idea of advocate, what I don't want you to think is that we've got an angry God the Father who is, I'm just eager to just, punish us and pour his wrath out upon us. And that Jesus, every time an accusation comes, kind of goes, no, no, Father, don't do it. No, no, Father, don't do it. That he's interceding and advocating in such a way that he's saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's a misunderstanding of the triune nature of God, okay? God the Father and God the Son share the same will, yes? They are of the same mind. They desire the same thing. The redemption that Jesus has purchased, the Father planned and sent his son to execute. The death of Jesus on the cross was infinitely painful to the Father, not just to the Son. It was deep work that they shared and delighted in. So his advocacy, I think, looks something like this. It's not that every time he has to go to the Father and go, no, 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 please don't, please don't, please don't, don't be angry but that the father is so pleased to have the son in his presence with the wounds on his hands and in his side and on his feet as a constant, beautiful presentation of their redemptive work so that the enemy brings the accusation and the son only needs to stand and say, here I am. 
the completion of righteousness for all my children. And the Father's so pleased to have it. The Father doesn't have to be convinced to give it. The Father's not being cajoled into it or talked into it. He delights, he and the Son together, to be there. Say, yes, this is the justice of God. This is the love of God. Do you see what I'm saying? So when we think advocate, don't, don't think he's having to convince an angry God not to pour out his wrath upon us. He has absorbed that wrath for sin, taken it, and now continues to advocate through his once-for-all sacrifice. He doesn't keep repeating it over and over to the Father. So friends, here's what I want you to notice as we come to the table. It's fitting that we come to the table of the Lord today to think about how to put our sin to death. Did you notice that of the weapons against sin that we looked at, all but one of them were not something we do, they're something he has done. And that's very intentional. We fight our sin by leaning into what he has done. And we bring even our confession, something we do, forth from that. We can have so much confidence in the love of God and our place with him and our fellowship with him as we, through the power of the Spirit and in turning to his work again and again, his work of forgiveness, his work of bringing us into fellowship with him, his advocacy, as we do those things, we turn to that. These are the weapons with which we put our sin to death and experience joy, the kind of life he intends for us. Servers, why don't you come down? We're gonna come to the Lord's table. And a couple of reminders that I like to give every time, because I know there's always, we always have new folks, you know, come and going. And so friends, this may be a new thing to you. Uh, it's a regular practice for us. And um, so the reminder always to us as a body is that we are told to examine ourselves and our sin, yes? When we come to the Lord's table, because this price that was paid, that is represented in these elements, was paid for your sin, and it was paid for my sin, and so sin is not something to take lightly, and that's exactly what we've been talking about, fighting our sin, and putting it to death, and here is the means by which that has occurred. So, we ponder that. If you are not a follower of Jesus, here's what you need to know. When we take these elements, we are proclaiming that we believe. We're proclaiming with our actions that we believe that through Jesus' death, we have received forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And we hope that you will see that as an invitation, that these elements represent an invitation to you to take up that same gift that we are proclaiming and saying we believe in. But until you believe, we'll invite you to just let the elements pass because we wouldn't want you to proclaim with your actions something you do not actually believe. That would be hypocrisy, and we would never want to invite anyone into that. We don't want you to be hypocritical any more than we want ourselves to be hypocritical. We want to be faithful. So friends, as we come to the table now, we get to consider our sin, release it to the Lord in confession now, in this moment, um, so that he might lead us forward. My guess is, as we've gone through, the Spirit, I'm assuming, has been bringing things to mind in his gentleness and in his love, showing you things that need to be continued to put to death. We need to fight against. So as we hold those things, let's hold them and also hold the joy of knowing that he has given us everything we need to walk in righteousness and put these things away. So service, why don't you come?
take these elements. My hope is that in hearing the word of God today, what you've heard is that there's a God who is inviting you into a, a rich life of righteousness, indeed does want to kill your sin, but for the sake of joy, his glory in your joy, and that you would know that he is powerful to come alongside you. You do not have to be afraid. On the night he was betrayed, Lord Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and giving it to the disciples, he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Father, thank you for the goodness of um, giving us these tangible experiences of grace that we can taste the, the food and taste the drink and that those are tangible expressions of forgiveness, of mercy, of holiness, and of power over sin. And we thank you for it. Your death is sufficient not just to justify us, but to sanctify us, to fill us with faith, help us to walk in righteousness, fill us with mercy towards others. May we be humble, knowing that we are in the fight against sin just as others are, and we pray that you'd help us. Make us the people you want us to be so that you would be glorified and honored through a people who are just given completely to you in every way. That's our desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to close our time by worshiping the Lord for his grace and mercy. Let's stand together and worship.